Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studio, it's time for Family Business Radio. Showcasing outstanding family businesses and the advisors who assist them. Good afternoon. You are listening to another episode of Family Business Radio. By yours truly, your host, Anthony Chen. Today, this episode, we have four great powerhouse guests uh, leading us off. Our first guest, we have Keely Collins from Alarby, Thompson, Sapp, and Wilson. Wow, that's that's a bit of a mouthful there. <laughs> it's a mouthful. Mm-hmm. Well, welcome to the show, Keely. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So kind of share us, with us uh, your origin story. What got you into law and in particular labor law? Well, sure. It's a pleasure to be here with you this afternoon. I love talking business and family business. Mm-hmm. Really how I got into employment law and labor law is... Uh, different from the typical pathway. I started out as a social worker inspired mostly by a real interest in problem solving, particularly people problem solving. Over time, I realized as a social worker, I couldn't bring a problem to finality. I could help people. I could consider a problem, but I couldn't really solve a problem with the kind of finality that I was interested in. And so I decided from there to pursue law school. Employment and labor law was kind of a niche that I fell into over time. Uh, During law school, I mostly interned for a law firm that practiced labor and employment law. And I realized for somebody who likes to solve people problems, employment law is a really good niche. And I've always been interested in business and entrepreneurship. I tried to start a business at a young age and had the same experience a lot of people do that it, it didn't work out. But entrepreneurship and business has always been an interest of mine. So combining problem solving interest in business, employment became my focus, particularly mm-hmm. representing corporations, really of all sizes. Mm-hmm. Now, generally, kind of a stereotype when people think of employment or labor law, they're thinking of big corporations. How does that kind of play into smaller or family businesses context? It's a great question, Anthony. I think that this can sometimes be a trap for the unwary. And what I mean by that is many small business owners do think that risk management is applicable to large businesses. They think large businesses have a large amount of risk and a lot of money to draw from to mitigate that risk. So it's really a large business concern. But I've seen many very uh, well-meaning and uh, diligent small businesses not do too well because of neglecting particular areas of risk management. So kind of addressing that elephant room with risk management, at least and when it comes to employment factors, how can someone like yourself bring in to kind of improve the quality of life for the business owner? Well, you know, that's a good question. I really try to work on improving the quality of life for small business owners. Um, Every small business, at least those that I've worked with, have started with somebody's inspiration. It's been an inspired, maybe even dream of a founder of a small business, and many family businesses are small businesses. What risk management support can really do is point out those areas of possible risk for a business to help them from falling into traps that could, in some cases, result in complete ruin of the business, depending on you know, how advanced the business is, what phase the business is, and what the particular risk is. Mm -hmm. So for employment law in particular, believe it or not, uh, any small businesses that if you even have one employee, you are taking on a level of employment risk. 
not only are you taking on a level of employment risk, but any employee is also an opportunity for business growth. So if you think of it as both risk and growth opportunity, risk management can help not only manage that risk, but also you can have legal support to uh, leverage that employee's capabilities and to maximize the value of that employee. So for, for kind of the small visitor listening in, they're just kind of hearing this for the first time. What is something that you find that is a common mistake that might be well-intentioned on a business owner that might just be tripping up on and not even be aware about? Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, for family businesses, I, I wouldn't say that this is a mistake, but I think this could be a pitfall. So a lot of times for family businesses, they start out with the family and everybody trusts each other. Everything's going really, really well. And then they bring in somebody Perhaps, and this is only one example. This isn't always a case, but they bring in somebody from outside the family who maybe doesn't share the family's values or sees things a little bit differently, and then you know things can start to take a turn. So that might be an area of potential risk. So how can the family business manage that risk? And this is just very simple. One hundred and one is having employer policies, which is something that a lot of small businesses might not think of having to do. Mm-hmm. So that kind of leads segues right into the next question. What do you find kind of the main challenges are challenges are when consulting for the family business? Well, um, I would have to say just right off the top that it's been one of my greatest joys to work with small businesses. Most of my clients are larger, but it's been one of my greatest joys to work with small family businesses just because of the inspiration behind the business and often the succession of generations that have helped to bring that idea to fruition. So I absolutely love working with small businesses, but sometimes one of the challenges that I find is an aversion to thinking about risk. So I think sometimes family businesses are so focused on, you know, what's our goal? We're moving forward. That's, that's all wonderful. But can we stop and think about areas of risk and how, we can best manage the risk of even having one employee come in to the business. Mm-hmm. Well, that's almost what one segue after another is the kind of another elephant in the room is how can a family's owner, family business owner do like right now, at least in the HR standpoint to kind of reduce or mitigate some of those employment risks? Well, this is very simple, but it is the advice I give to all my clients. Um, and I promise I won't bill anyone for this, but uh, I think very simple first step that you can do if you're done listening to this podcast is to put together job descriptions for each one of your paid positions. And I'm not, you know, you don't necessarily have to have a job description for your your son-in-law who's, you know, running the day-to-day or anything like that, but um, for your general employment positions. And that's a, a few things that can manage risk in many areas, but most importantly, it gives that position direction and structure and direction and structure as uh, an overall goal of any kind of risk management can be just uh, an important backdrop for thinking about why it, why it is that you are doing something and how that's going to help with the growth of your business overall, not just in risk management, but in many categories. Which then kind of leads uh, to the next question when it comes to succession planning for family business, whether it's wanting it to stay within the family because the kids or siblings wants to buy out the parents or the founders uh, or maybe selling to a third party like a PE, private equity. How can HR or an employment attorney come in to really help the family make that transition easier or really leverage that HR potential? I have found this to be perhaps the most 
contested issue whenever I work with small family businesses, just because it's a sensitive topic. And I always approach it with the utmost humility because this is somebody's goal. It's their, their dream, their plan. A couple of small family businesses I work with, they, they had the, uh, the joy perhaps of seeing their children really exceed their level of success and start multiple businesses after watching their parents, their family be small family business owners. So sometimes that's a, an example of when it might be positive, but still the potential that you might not have a next generation necessarily to take over the business. You know, if your kids really take off and, you know, they're starting their own businesses. So you can have situations where the next generation maybe isn't as eager to jump into the fray and run the business, or you can have situations where the next generation is ready to go and they're like, uh, you know, dad, it's uh, about time. When are, when are we going to transition here? So you can have all types of situations. The one that I would see uh, might, well, I really can't say one is more common than the other, but just in terms of, uh, again, this is really high level if you're looking at both scenarios. So you have another generation that's looking to come in and to buy out the first generation, you can work with an employment attorney who is knowledgeable also in executive compensation, employee benefits, and tax issues to help transition the business through the sale of stock. So that's one way that you can transition using outside counsel. Another, like let's say you have the other scenario where you have a next generation who isn't particularly keen on coming in and taking over the business, but the first generation says, you know, look at how hard I've worked to get us here. What do we want to do to keep the mission of the business alive. One thing that you could do is an ESOP, uh, the employee stock option plan. And what that would do is transfer the business to the employees as owners. And that can get pretty complicated pretty fast, but you also could have a knowledgeable employment and tax attorney help you with that transition. And both of them have their, uh, both of them have their challenges and both of them involve a lot more than just some lawyer coming in and telling you how to do the nuts and bolts. It's really uh, family management working within the family on how you want to make that transition. Mm-hmm. Now, it almost sounds like you do a little bit more than just uh, the legal and drafting of documents. It sounds like you're a therapist for the uh, family business owner. <laughs> well, that's a good observation, Anthony. I actually am a small business owner myself as a lawyer, and probably a lot of lawyers can relate to this, that we develop our book of business over time, over, you know, a decade or more. And we understand the challenges of having a business of starting from nothing and building yourself up. So absolutely. I can relate very closely with small business owners and what it might be like to make that transition eventually. Mm -hmm. So for those who are kind of listening in and they're kind of sitting on a fence and, and haven't had that conversation either with, from the founder to the kids and vice versa, uh, how would you recommend those that are listening to just at least start that conversation? Well, yeah, that's a re- that's a really good question. I think that's a very delicate topic, and it really depends on the founder generation and where they are in the process. So you could have, I have heard of the older generation being very interested in succession, and they just can't wait to have this discussion. They have, uh, they have points, bullet points along the way and goals that they want to meet. And they're just ready to make that transition. But then sometimes you have some awkwardness there. And one of the awkward points is the fact that sometimes that older, older generation is getting elderly. So what do you do if something were to happen before the business has effectively changed hands? So that's, that's another lawyer altogether than me. That would be more of a trust and estates issue perhaps, but there, that can that can be a delicate issue, and I would recommend working with the founder generation or the older generation 
and not be too pushy with them right off the bat. Mm-hmm. Well, then speaking of multiple multiple generations, another aspect for the younger generation with business owners working with is the problem of attracting and retaining key employees. What are you hearing out there in terms of the challenges from business owners and what can someone like yourself can come in to provide solutions to these business owners where it's just really a hot market out there to just attract key talent? Yes. So when we're talking about attracting and retaining employees, the challenges that I have seen with small business owners have been a a couple. First of all, when you have a group that is a family and they have their values and their expectations going into the business, and then they try to bring others into the business, they're never going to be able to transfer the exact level of enthusiasm to outside employees who they're paying a salary or an hourly rate to. So how do you keep those employees engaged? That goes back to some practices that are actually good from a risk management standpoint anyway, which are the structure of the business, having policies, systems, having job descriptions, and so forth. And that's a more detailed discussion, certainly than just that high level of listing what it is, but uh, that can be part of your plan for attracting and retaining employees is not expecting people from the outside to have a perfect understanding and, in, and having a structure in place so that when employees come in, they understand the values and the goals of business. It's kind of interesting, all these studies that are being done, especially of younger employees, what they're looking for, what they're really looking for is a meaningful experience, even more so though than the benefits and salary of perhaps some of the older generations. So I think that's one of the, the key points is making sure that they're part of the vision, they're part of the mission, there's a structure there, and there is a pathway forward for them. Another option, and this is something that also you could work with an employment attorney on or employment, employee benefits or, uh, or employment compensation tax attorney on is developing compensation plans for those employees. There are creative strategies, and sometimes it depends on the structure of the business, so they can't work for every business, but there are employee compensation strategies that you can work on that give a certain tax benefit to your employees and to the company and don't necessarily require an immediate upfront contribution. An example would be something like a restricted stock plan or something like that, that you can speak with your employment attorney about. Mm-hmm. Wow. This is a lot of uh, gold information. So uh, listeners, uh, you consider yourself lucky. You're not going to get an invoice <laughs> from Keely here. <laughs> so for those who are listening and, and just exploring this for the first time, how much an employment and labor law attorney can help better their business, how can they best reach out to you and find you? Yes, I would love to hear from any of you. You can contact me by email, Colin, C-O-L-L-I-N-S, at Ellerbee Thompson, E-L-A-R-B-E-E-T-H-O-M-P-S-O-N. Or you can look me up on LinkedIn, Keely Collins, and I will connect with you and reach out to you. Thank you. Thank you. Now, speaking of family business, we have our next guest, Todd Reed with DK Rentals. Welcome to the show, Todd. Uh, great to be here. Thanks for having me, Anthony. Great. So kind of share with us uh, your origin stories uh, with your family business. So um, I come from a line of entrepreneurs. Um, my dad uh, was a plumber, owned his own plumbing business. And so just as we grew up, it was always uh, shared with us the advantages and disadvantages of owning your own business. And uh, so when I went through school, I went more of a traditional route, you know, went to, went through university, got a degree in engineering, uh, worked for IBM, worked for Accenture. Um, and while I was on a consulting engagement with Accenture, um, I joined a, a tennis club and started playing tennis with some guys and literally 
um, uh, sat down with my doubles partner over at, at a bar, uh, pulled out the napkin and put together a business plan. And we went and started a new business called Envision Medical. And uh, so I was uh, 28 years old at the time. Uh, great experience, but it really wasn't my business. I did own stock, but uh, but uh, it was an incredible experience uh, that didn't forget. And, uh, you know, kind of after we sold that business to Bristol Myers Squibb, um, I do what most people do when they sell their business. They uh, moved to Costa Rica and go surfing, and uh, which is where I went, met my lovely bride, which is a whole nother uh, show. We'll have, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> but um, when I came came back, got again, uh, got back to a more t- t- typical career job, but uh, still had that desire to have my own business. And uh, so I started buying some little re- little houses for rental properties. Uh, while I was working um, in corporate America and uh, immediately fired my property manager because they weren't doing a good job. And we started managing our own properties. And I was like, wow, this is kind of cool. And uh, eventually uh, we kind of grew that portfolio again, just managing our own. Um, and then we came across a group called Homebusters, uh, which folks might be familiar with the billboards. Let's say we buy ugly houses. And uh, so I bought a couple houses from them and asked them more about the franchise. And, uh, we decided that this was a good way for us to leave corporate America and get into our own business. And so, uh, we bought a home business franchise. Uh, we're flipping houses like mad. Um, and part of our business model was, um, we called our sixes and sevens program where we would work with uh, investors at, uh, uh, six figure income, 700 plus credit scores, get them lined up with our little local bank. And, uh, we'd go out and buy them houses and rehab for them. And, um, get the fine, you know, have the financial financing in place. And then they wanted us to do the property management. So that's how we started getting into property management for other people. We're just doing it for our investors. And then 2008 hit banks stopped lending money. My investors stopped buying houses and all of a sudden our flipping business was no longer flipping. And all we had left was property management. And uh, so out of kind of the ashes of all that um, we formed uh, dkrentals.net because that's all that was left of our business and that's uh, and uh, we were terrible property managers. I didn't even have a license to do property management. And at that point, I had two options: I go back into corporate America, or I figure out how to make money in property management. And that's how DK Rentals was formed. Mm-hmm. So, what, how did the name DK Rentals come about? Uh, so, we have two boys. Uh, very blessed. Uh, my uh, eldest son is Declan, uh, the D, and he's uh, 25 years old. And uh, our youngest son is Kalen, um, who's K. Mm-hmm. So DK are the two boys Great. who of course were out looking for looking at houses that we were trying to buy and flip, et cetera, since they were tiny little kids. So they've got a little bit of real estate in their blood as well. Mm-hmm. Great. So are they kind of taking on your same path or are they kind of exploring? Absolutely you know? not. They want absolutely nothing to do with the family <laughs> business. So it's interesting to hear Keely's points on that. So, mm-hmm. um, which I'm glad, I think they need to go out and, and do their own thing and, and work. I think I'd you know, get into corporate America and see that structure that's involved there mm-hmm. and then let them, if they have a desire, let them come back. Um, but we're definitely not uh, forcing that on them or, or strongly pushing them. So we'll see what, you know, what mm-hmm. ha- how that comes down. Yeah. So with kind of the rental or uh, property management business kind of more or less taking over, do you still do any flipping on the side? Um we do not. Uh, it takes a lot of time and energy. That that business has greatly changed. Obviously, institutional investors have come into that space. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot more competition than before. Um, it's much more difficult to find deals. And so uh, we stay very, very focused on our, in the property management space. And when we have investors that come to us asking for um, to help them find deals, we refer that out. 
and then hopefully our referral partner will then send the send it back to us once they find a property. Now, with so many kind of uh, property management firms out there, what is what do you feel is kind of your unique selling proposition compared to the market? Yeah, and, and that's changed. Um, we're, we're coming from an IT background, as I mentioned. I work for Accenture, IBM, um, industrial engineer, so I've always been strong in technology, strong on process. Um, so we've always been um, worked hard on finding great technology solutions, and um, it's it's kind of low, a lot of low low hanging fruit in our industry because traditionally uh, property management has been pretty low tech. Mm-hmm. So uh, you don't have to go very far to be all of a sudden a high tech leader in our, in our industry. And that's, that's changing, but, and, and there's, but uh, there's, there's better and better tools that are, that are coming out. And, um, and so part of what my job is to go out to uh, different conventions and talk to some of the thought leaders in our space and try to incorporate that into our business. Um, one example of that that we just rolled out a few months ago is um, in our screening process. Um, you know, the the old days of just pulling a credit card, uh, credit credit report, and take a look at some uh, pay stubs that someone might have forged. Just that that doesn't work anymore. Mm-hmm. So um, we're rolled out a tool now where we use um, the tool uses facial recognition, and so someone will have to take a selfie, and that goes out and searches all kind of uh, databases similar when you go through immigration in the airport, to, and it comes back with a score to verify how how um, confident the software is that this is actually the person that's applying. Cause we've had a lot of identity theft. And, oh. and uh, uh, so that's just one area where we're really leveraging technology and there's very few people that are still, that are doing that right now. So that's kind of a, that's a, that's a great benefit. Um, it's a benefit for our, obviously for our landlords, cause we're going to put a higher qualified st- tenant in there. Mm-hmm. But um, the software also gives us access to the, to the applicants uh, bank, bank account information. So that sounds a little scary, but if you ever use Venmo, you do the same thing or PayPal, right? You let someone go, they, they access your bank account. We're not, we can't take, make uh, withdrawals, mm-hmm. but the software will go out, read their bank accounts, look at their transactions, can, can actually look at what their pace um, is, whether uh, the amount that they're getting paid, because they could see all the, the credits to their account. And then they could also see the debits when they're paying their rent. So immediately, if they allow us to link to the bank account, we can come back and, and approve them within minutes where it might have taken days just to gather all that information together. So more accurate data, more timely response, higher qualified tenants. So that's that's just one example through technology we're able to uh, be unique. Um, and then the other thing that's happened being, being unique is we're actually still locally owned and run. I mean, there's so much um, roll up going on in our business right now. Um, you know, it, it, it was fintech, you know, is it, a big, big um, um uh, uh, class right, and and now prop tech is really big. So Silicon Valley VC guys they realize that the single family space where they've come in as institutional investors that's starting to mature. So they said, "Wow, let's take that to the next level." Because property management, so a lot of mom and pops out there. Let's just let's do the same thing that, in, that, in that space. Start buying up all these property management companies around the country and roll them up and try to. Get, and then we're going to reclassify them as a prop tech and get a higher ratio. So so a lot of the big companies are. are the serious players in the business are getting purchased right now. So the fact that we're still locally owned and operated is becoming a, uh, is becoming unique where before everyone was locally owned and operated. Mm-hmm. Well, for, for our, uh, risk management or attorneys listening in, they really love the fact that you're now improving the quality and risk uh, management, at least uh, on the applicant end. So then the next question is, is, is looking at 
just not just tech, but I understand that you've also got some of your staff living outside of the country. Kind of share with us kind of that inside of what kind of prompted that move as well. Yeah, because I'm really scared of employment uh, attorney attorneys. So, I, <laughs> <laughs> so no, but um, uh, our over the last few years, our industry has has. Um, has leveraged that opportunity of, of using, using virtual, um, virtual assistance. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, so we, we were, we jumped into that about three years ago where we, tr- we went and hired our first, first virtual assistant. Um, mm-hmm. um, we started off, we started off using a call center in the Philippines, uh, to answer calls on our vacant properties. Then that led to actually, um, hiring a virtual assistant, um, in Colombia, South America, and uh, that worked very well. So then we went and hired a second, hired a third, hired a fourth. And um, what we found, the plan was we would hire these folks as assistants to our staff here in uh, locally. And what we found is that a lot of the staff that uh, we were hiring in Columbia were super qualified, um, super um, well-educated, and very, very loyal, which is really challenging with alternative. We talked about that earlier in this program and speak. And then on top of that, the dollar keeps getting stronger. So my folks are getting a raise almost every, every, every month because of the currency exchange. So now when I'm spending a lot of uh, time and energy and training folks, I know these are folks are going to stay around. And so they've really played a more leadership role in our business. And that wasn't the, that wasn't the strategy. It just has been a pleasant surprise that we're finding. So, so we don't call them, they're not virtual assistants anymore. They're virtual team members. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I go down a, f- a few times a year to Columbia, spend time with the team. We do team building down there. And, uh, and so we de- actually, each year we do a goal setting. Uh, we have a business coach. And, um, and instead of us doing the goal setting program here um, in Atlanta, uh, what we did this year is my business coach went down with me to Bogota. And so we did the goal setting down there. And the folks up here had to be virtual. And so that was a great exercise. It also was showing, trying to show the team that the, our folks that are maybe in another country, but as they're much a part of DK rentals as the folks that are here. So it's been a really cool experience. It's been a great for um, even our folks here to get to, to know folks from other cultures and see how well they get along. And, and, and so it's been a real neat ex, uh, experiment that, that has gone on and has just really helped helped uh, DK rentals uh, take it, take it to a whole nother level. Mm-hmm. Well, then the elephant in the room is that uh, you mentioned as you're kind of growing your presence in Colombia, was it any influence from your trip in Costa Rica and kind of spending down time in South America? Are you kind of hinting to us your, this well, is your long-term plan? <laughs> uh, no, um, my wife is Colombian. Oh. So, so I definitely have uh, some long-term ties to Colombia <laughs> for mm-hmm. sure. Uh, so, um, and my in-laws down there are fantastic. Uh, we do, we have a ranch down in Colombia, so we do spend a good amount of time, but uh but no, Atlantis, Atlantis uh, is still home and plan on keeping it home. Great. So for those who are listening in and thinking about either dabbling or they have already properties that they're looking for someone to come in to help out, especially on the avenue of qualifying or having better systems to qualify applicants, um, what is the charge? What, what is kind of the additional services you provide uh, for those who are looking for it? So so we're so we're, we're a full-service property management company, so that, was gonna, that includes... You know, not only finding tenants, doing the marketing, we use MLS um, as well as Zillow. You know, and, and to you know, make sure we get good qualified uh, applicants to get to, for marketing perspective. Um, and then once the tenants in, we'll take care of all of the 
um, collections of the rent, dealing with any tenant issues that may come up if they don't pay, dealing with, you know, hopefully not eviction, but we'll manage through that whole process if we have to. Mm-hmm. Um, all the repairs, we handle all the, all the repair side of the, pro, uh, of the um, uh, business as well. So th- what we try to do for our, our clients is make it so it's literally electronic mailbox money because we're going to handle everything for you. We're going to communicate with you if there's some, you know, we need some approvals for expenditures, but we want to make sure that we can take care of just about everything for you. So you don't have to worry, worry about your rental property. And we do that for a flat fee of $80 a month per property. Oh, all right. So for those who are just kind of listening with their ears perked up on that, how can they best find you, Doug? Yes. Um, so the best way to reach me is on my cell phone at uh, 678-296-8948. And my email is Todd, T-O-D-D, at dkrentals.net that's Dean David K's and Kite R-E-N-T-A-L-S dot net and uh, yeah if people have, just have questions about um, you know how do you work through I mean the, the space has just changed so much with COVID on what you can and cannot do um, with tenants and, and how do you handle that so I'll be more than happy to uh, to help anyone who has some questions about that great thank you thank you Anthony so our next guest, speaking of uh, going down the line of family businesses, we have Bill Smith with Double Iron Consulting. Welcome to the show, Bill. Great to be here, Anthony. Great. Kind of share with us your journey and your story with your family business. Happy to do so. So I grew up in a family business, Royal Cup Coffee and Tea, based in Birmingham, Alabama. And I had the distinct pleasure, and it was a true blessing, to live in an environment uh, so close together as a family business. Uh, and so I grew up and as a teenager, uh, remember vividly the opportunities I had to work in the business. And then after college, I joined the business professionally for my career and did a host of different jobs serving the business. And ultimately that led to being, uh, the third generation president and CEO leading that business. Uh, so my journey, uh, has, uh, been throughout our family business And along the way, I've had the pleasure of uh, interacting with other family business owners. And uh, so I've learned a lot about uh, how much fun and how challenging and all of the different opportunities that a family business can provide, particularly to members of the family who aspire to to work in or benefit from the family business. So when I transitioned uh, to our board, and stepped down and, and handed the reins over to a non-family executive team, uh, I thought this would be a wonderful opportunity to pursue consulting and give it back, take my practical experience, pay it forward, or give it back to other businesses uh, so that we can all learn and grow together and continue to see family businesses thrive uh, across this country. So I formed Double Iron Consulting, uh, and it's a wonderful uh, journey of mine uh, to do so and, and Appreciate being here so we can talk about it a little bit more. Thank yeah. you very much, Anthony. Yeah, certainly. Kind of share with us what made you come up with the name uh, Double Iron Consulting. Well, as I said, our family business, Royal Cup Coffee, is based in Birmingham, Alabama. And Birmingham has a history in iron and steel. So that is one of the irons uh, in Double Iron. Uh, the second iron is my personal fitness journey. Uh, I have been a runner and swimmer for a very long time, and I recently picked up the biking element, so I've started triathlons. And my aspiration, if you'd like to hold me accountable to it, is to work my way up toward an Ironman, hence the second iron or double iron. Mm-hmm. It's a big aspiration. I've got a long journey, uh, but it keeps me motivated, uh, and I definitely appreciate the challenge 
uh, of pursuing such uh, an Ironman feat. So, so then that kind of leads the elephant in the room question is between navigating doing the succession plan and handing the reins over in a family business or training for an Ironman, which is hot tougher? <laughs> that is a great question uh, and something that I think we can all laugh and, and smile about. So each opportunity does bring its own challenges, and being a part of a family business has a lot of fun and pleasure and as a roller coaster ride. So that means you also experience the complexities and challenges of how do you align yourself together as a whole family supporting the business, and how do you work positively with the non-family members such that you can have an effective, successful, and growing business. There's a lot of challenges involved in that, and that takes a lot of time, effort, and in particular, sweat equity. The, the opportunity it presents is sometimes it motivates you to reflect and uh, uh, put off some steam, and that's where a personal fitness plan uh, comes in handy. And so I've been an avid devotee to exercise, uh, and I recommend it to all family business owners uh, because the family business is a wonderful thing, but you have to really invest in yourself, uh, not only intellectually, professionally, spiritually, but also, uh, I think, with a wellness attention. And so the personal fitness is something that I aspire to do for myself, and I encourage others to commit their time to do that as well and maintain a balance and a whole life perspective. Well, listeners, you hear it here as some of the secret sauce is uh, got to take care of yourself, right? That's true. That's true. And also drink coffee, by the way. Yes. <laughs> so certainly no bias on that. Just a shameful plug. <laughs> so you did highlight about a succession plan where you kind of handed the reins over to a non-family. Kind of share with us that are listening in where kind of they have this whole, I don't want to say fantasy, but having that torch pass on within the multi-generation uh, business, uh, you managed to successfully transition as a succession plan to a non-family. Share with some insights what that experience is like and how, how, how did that conversation planning come about? That's a great question. And so within our family, uh, we took a long approach with succession planning. And the result of that uh, benefited me because I did become our third generation president and CEO. And at that time, the task for our family business was to really emphasize and build out the infrastructure of our business such that it could support the nationwide set of customers that my father and my uncle, uh, the two of them preceded me, they had really established the company across the entire United States. But we needed more of a strong infrastructure. And so my goal and opportunity was to really focus in and leverage my training uh, within operations to do that for the business. Right before COVID began, we as a collective family decided that now was the next chapter in the business where we really needed to emphasize other aspects uh, and prepare for the next phase of growth. And so thankfully, our business and personally, we had hired individuals uh, who were capable of growing uh, with additional responsibility. So the gentleman I hired as our CFO was ready to take the baton and we as a collective family member agreed that in the best interest of our business, uh, we should promote our uh, CFO to a COO role and then ultimately the CEO role. That enabled us, Anthony, to 
focus on family alignment and how best we could support the executive team from a board and shareholder position. And then it enabled our executive team to really focus on strengthening the business and preparing it and leading it through its next phase of growth. I'll be honest, no one expected the pandemic to occur, uh, but thankfully we had built a strong platform and we had uh, surrounded the business with strong leaders who also had the support of family to carry Royal Cup through the pandemic. So my hat's off to all of those executive leaders, and I'm proud of the fact that our family was able to support them through it. That's an incredible story. So it sounds like this is not a decision that was made overnight, but rather you've set the foundation a long time ago, as you mentioned, even before COVID came into the picture. Well, I will say that succession planning is best done when you take a long approach and you use the benefit of time. And I look back on the dialogue that my father and uncle had, and then the dialogue that my father, my uncle, and I had as we were working through different phases of of that succession plan. And so I'm a strong advocate for family businesses, whether they're in their first generation or second generation, or even generations after that, to really take a comprehensive and long approach to how you can set up members of the family for uh, generation after generation of success. And if you use the benefit of time, then that gives you the opportunity to train, to use the value of immersion experiences to really benefit your family in the long run, especially for those who don't really know if they want to join the business, uh, but ultimately through experiences come back around and say, this is something exciting that I want to do. If you have a long approach to succession planning, then you're able to really make those decisions at the right time and build your business for success. You touched a little bit, you brought up immersion experiences. What is that? I like to look at immersion experiences as the way that family members get exposure to the business. For some, it can be extended periods of time. For example, when I was a teenager, I worked all of my high school summers and even a few of my college summers working in different facets of the business whether it was learning how to roast coffee, whether it was learning how to sell to the customers within the Birmingham area, or even taking a trip to Costa Rica and seeing what uh, coffee is like in a producing country. Those are examples of immersion experiences where I, as a young person, was able to become more and more aware of what the family business is like and, and what it means to a variety of people. Another example of immersion experiences is when you decide to commit yourself to a family business as your professional career to make sure that you see the foundational level, the customer interaction elements of your business, and you know what has built your business into success. And when you have that exposure, then you are able to uh, enhance your skill set and prepare yourself for leadership opportunities down the road. So that's what I mean by immersion experiences. Learn the business by doing, not by being told what it's like. Well, I know also on the side, within your consulting practices, you talk a lot about building family councils. What is that for for our listeners that are just kind of hearing all these terms for the first time? A family council, Anthony, is a wonderful opportunity for family business owners to have a dedicated time together as family members so they can talk about the business, 
uh, and talk about what the business means to the family. Now, I want to distinguish a family council from an advisory board or a board of directors. A board of directors is involved in the governance of the business. A family council is an opportunity for family members, particularly those who have an investment stake in the business or aspire to have a stake. That's their opportunity to uh, better understand the motivations, the values, the missions, what's really important to the family, uh, along with uh, what the business means to the family. It's a great way to expose younger generation to what uh, the business uh, delivers to the family, and it enables the family members to work through where they have potential agreement or disagreement. Uh, So that's the benefit of a family council. Very, very different than an advisory board or a board of directors. Uh, Those two groups have often formal responsibilities to work closely with the executive team to manage and make decisions that affect the long-term health of the business and govern the operations. Now, in terms of your role, do you help the families kind of navigate these conversations or are you kind of the uh, therapist in line to, to really bring up these tough conversations? Because you've experienced it yourself. You, you've gone through it all. And I perhaps, as opposed to someone who have not gone through that step, you might perhaps be bring a little level of insight that they might not even consider. That's a great question, Anthony. Thank you very much. What I appreciate about my opportunity is I get the opportunity to be a partner to other family businesses uh, so I can share the practical experience that I've gained through the years. Uh, But then importantly, as a partner, listen to what the founding generation or the incoming second generation, what are the things that they are going through and what are their aspirations for their business? And how can I, as a partner, engage with them through sharing my experiences, sharing what went well, what may not have gone well, but then really importantly, listen to what they're going through and help them see what may be up in front uh, so that they can do what is best for their overall business. And, and that's what I look forward to, to doing. Uh, I am not the technical expert like uh, my uh, lawyer friends around the table, uh, but I do have the practical experience of having grown up, lived, and importantly, led a family business. And that's what I want to pay it forward and share with other family business owners out there. So for those that are listening in in kind of a similar position that you were once in, how can they best reach out to you and and find a partner to kind of help them navigate and kind of avoid some of the the, the mistakes? Thank you, Anthony. The best way to reach out and connect with me is through my website, doubleironconsulting.com, or you can contact me through LinkedIn, Bill Smith, Double Iron. There are a few Bill Smiths out there, so I emphasize the Double Iron. Uh, Or my email, which is wesmith at doubleironconsulting.com. Great. Thank you, Bill. Now, as we're kind of wrapping up, uh, closing out the show, talking about succession planning, ironically, or maybe purposefully, we have Michelle Wilson with Wilson Legal. Welcome to the show, Michelle. Thank you, Anthony. Happy to be here. Right. So kind of share with us uh, your story. What got you into law, particularly in wills and estates? Well, uh, let me start with what got me into wills and estates. It was probably based on a personal experience I had when I was in high school, when I discovered that I find fulfillment in helping be a small part in someone else's life, becoming the best version of that life that it can be. 
And I discovered that when I was volunteering for an equestrian therapy nonprofit. And my job was as a sidewalker on the horse while the disabled child was riding the horse to keep them from sliding off while they were doing their exercises. And this one little girl who was six six years old, her name was Alice, and she had um, cerebral palsy. And it affected one side of her body. So she had braces on her leg and her arm and her hand were curled in. And she walked, when she took a step, she would drag a foot, her, her braced foot with her along in the dirt. And she would get up on the horse. And her one thing she wanted to do was become a cowgirl. And so I took the therapist exercises and I made them into cowgirl exercises. And she decided she wanted to work with me more than the therapist. So the therapist just told me what to do. And I taught her how to be a cowgirl for six weeks on Saturday mornings. And this was early Saturday. And as a teenager, I can tell you, you know, I was looking forward to getting up early to see Alice. So on the end of that six weeks, she got off the horse and she ran 50 yards to her dad. She was so happy. And her dad had a tear coming down his eye, right? Because his six-year-old was running. She didn't drag her foot. She lifted her leg up with every step. She had no idea that what she had done had helped her as much as it did. She was just happy she was a cowgirl. So a lot of clients come to me with problems that they think they need a solution to, but they also have other problems that I can help with. Um, and I think that's really what gives me fulfillment in my practice. Now, how I got into law school, it's kind of a funny story. I'm the daughter of an IBMer and a teacher, and my dad kind of thought of attorneys as sleazy money thieves, necessary sometimes, but to be avoided at all cost. Um, and so I really got into law school when I got a speeding ticket in college. And I was thinking about a master's degree I was going to get, and, um, you know, essentially the speeding ticket required me to get an attorney and I had kind of closed the door on law as a master's opportunity because I didn't want to be a sleazy money thieving lawyer. And, um, the guy that I hired said, Hey, have you thought about law school? Cause the narrative you wrote about what happened was really good. And I said, well, no, I haven't. My dad doesn't really think highly of attorneys. And I, I had hired our family attorney for this. Um, so I applied to law school because I wanted to keep my options open and I got in. Um, and so I guess the rest is history. I ended up opening my practice in 2008, about four years after I became an attorney. And I've always had that small practice kind of desire because I've always wanted that inner client, um, very personal um, interaction. So kind of with your experiences in law school, and, and thank you for sharing the story with a little girl, was it kind of a natural gravitation for you to help people fix problems in the estate planning world? Oh, Yeah. And with a law degree, what's nice is you can fix problems people can't fix themselves. Mm-hmm. And you can show them those hidden um, hazards that maybe they don't see. Um, and you can do that in other careers too. You know, I feel like I could do what I could be happy even not being a lawyer as long as I was helping people live the best version of their life. You know, business coaches help people avoid those hazards, especially in family businesses that maybe they don't see because of their experience. So a lot of us, if we've picked the right career, we're using our, our experience and our passions to create more life and to create more success and to help other people have what they're, what they're dreaming of having. I know with estate planning or wills law, some people can be looking kind of stereotypically, Oh, that's a little morbid. I don't want to think about it, but your, your perspective is really disaster planning. Kind of share with, with us, uh, for the listener, like what, what does that entail? I thought, you know, wills and estates is just, I just dropped dead, but I imagine there's gotta be more than that. Well, I, I wanted to talk today about disaster planning, mainly because of what happened during the pandemic and, and I, what I found that I wasn't prepared for in my own practice. But no, I actually think of estate planning as being one of the most romantic things you can do with your spouse. Mm-hmm. Because it's time for you to look at your spouse in the eyes and tell them how much you love them, because this is how I want you to be taken care of when I'm gone. 
And then you do the same thing for your kids. So it's actually a really, really intimate expression of love. And I think if people would start thinking about it that way, maybe a lot more people would actually start doing it. But as far as disaster planning, I don't want to talk about that today because I know we were talking about business succession yes. and I thought I had it kind of covered because I had a, I had a person who was my backup, you know, godmother of my firm and I had some systems in place and I felt like, you know, she was a good ethical person. She could jump in if we need her. And I had my errors and omissions insurance and life insurance to cover expenses. And I thought, well, I'm probably good. Well, then COVID happens and I didn't have a plan for that. I wasn't on you know, I didn't have the systems I needed to really get through that crisis. And I didn't, I realized there was a lot more I needed to do. And so what I've done since then is I've started taking the steps to make sure that we're covered. Mm-hmm. So since we're kind of circling back to the succession planning of businesses, you do succession plan really for families and you touch a little bit about um, more of a, a romantic aspect that most people might not even consider share with us perhaps a, a client story uh, or your experience where they never really touch on sensitive subjects, but once that wall came down, it, it was a whole different level of perspective for your client. I think a lot of people, when they come in, they have this attitude of not wanting to give up control until they absolutely have to. Right. And I think a lot of business owners are the same way. They don't want to give up control until they have to. And I'll give you an example, powers of attorney, Um, we used to do powers of attorney. So they were effective only when you got loopy and you had no capacity, right? Mm -hmm. Well, how many of us as business owners would hire someone, make them sit outside of our office, not train them, teach them where anything is until we got too loopy to show them how to do their job. Mm -hmm. We would never do that. So why would we do that in our own family business? Mm -hmm. That's not setting our families up for success at all. It's setting our agents up for failure. So I make my powers of attorney effective immediately, and I actually encourage my families to test it. Go on a really long trip and make your agents log into your bank accounts and find all the security questions you did not give them the answers to. So that when you're actually gone and they need to use that power of attorney, Mm -hmm. they know how to do it. They know how your family business runs. It's the same in your your family small business. You Mm -hmm. want to be prepared. Mm -hmm. Almost like we're kind of circling back to immersion experience, but for family and estate planning. Indeed. Yes. In fact, immersion experience is is an excellent idea and I highly recommend it because if you've got a power of attorney in place right now and the person who comes in, you know, doesn't do a good job, you can fire them. And examples are, oh, well, I need to name my eldest child as my first agent because they're the eldest. Well, they're an art, if they're an artsy creative person and their natural aptitude and gift that they were born with does not include keeping bills organized or making payments on time, mm-hmm. why are we going to put them in that seat? Um, I believe in the right person in the right seat. The right person needs to be in that seat. And the families that come into my office, we actually have a discussion of why are you naming this agent? And that's one of the things that really makes hiring an attorney's office a lot different than going to an internet source for your wills or your documents, because we go that level deeper in making sure the right people are in there and making sure the client actually knows how to use the document. Oh, so you mean I can't just go to LegalZoom, print it up and and, and just do my own thing? There's a little bit more nuance. You could. (laughs) And there was a comic I read today uh, from another estate planning firm about a dad that said, I went to LegalZoom to get my wills. You think cleaning your room is a hard now and cleaning up the mess in your room is hard now. Just wait until Mm -hmm. we're gone and then see what, how hard it is to clean up our mess. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, When people want to go to probate themselves and handle something, I usually tell them you can do it yourself first, or you can hire me to do it probably right the first time. If you don't, I can always clean up your mess. But remember, cleaning up messes takes a lot of time and money 
and resources that mom and dad probably would rather put somewhere else. Mm-hmm. So talking about another new perspective, whether it's looking at wills or estate planning as more of a affection or showing of love and testing out your potential power of the, uh, powers of attorney, uh, what other advice that you see or you see in certain um, estate plans that is kind of a, not so much a, a big mistake, but something that people should take into consideration. Oh, I didn't even think about that because I don't even think about testing out a power of attorney until you brought it up. <laughs> so you got to think of your family business like a business, right? Mm-hmm. Your family is a business and all of your family, the way your family functions is a combination of systems. Only with a family, the systems are usually in our head, right? They're not written down. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically what we all need to do is have an operating manual for our families. Um, and if we can do that, you know, that definitely would help ensure if we hire other people to come in and help with parts of that business, that they'll do things the way we want them to do it. Right. Um, and so it's another way of showing love, right? If, if you were gone suddenly, if you were to die tomorrow, how many people would it take to replace you? Think of all the jobs that you do personally and professionally, who's going to take your place in all of those slots. And if you haven't thought about that, maybe a really good exercise is just to take out a scrap piece of paper um, and write down all the jobs you do. You know, if you're a mom, do you need somebody to pick up your kid from school or daycare? Do you need somebody to, if you do the books or admin at the office, who's going to do take your place for the work you do at the office? If you own your own company, who's going to take your place? And the person you've thought of who's going to take your place, have they visited your office? Do they know what kind of software you use? Do they know how they're going to access their passwords, the passwords they're going to need? Um, there's, it's just practical, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of families end up thinking, oh, I have this business. I set up the LLC myself with the secretary of state. I paid the filing fees. I'm done. And then they come in my office and they want to do a trust. And I say, do you have an operating agreement? Well, that sets the rules for how we transfer the shares of your company to your trust. You, you need instructions. You need an instruction book. You know, people come to me and they say, all these details you're talking about, it sounds really complex, but you know what? It's not complex because what we're doing when we add the detail of how the business is going to succeed to the next level, we're creating clarity for the next person. So they don't end up sitting in that chair wondering, what do I do next? Mm-hmm. Well, you're, you're blowing all kinds of uh, bubbles here. First, uh, legal zoom is not, not sufficient. And now you're telling me these sites that I can, I can set up an LLC for $300 is not adequate. Nope. There are lots of holes and I'm sure an employment lawyer here would really agree with that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, for those who were, their minds were kind of just being blown uh, as you're listening to this and thinking, Oh, I don't even think about that. Or maybe I should trial and, and test out my uh, power of attorney. How can they best uh, reach out to you, Michelle? Best way to reach me is either through the website, Wilson hyphen or dash legal.com, or you can email my team at info I-N-F-O at Wilson, W-I-L-S-O-N, hyphen or dash legal.com. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Anthony. All right. So you've heard here uh, in terms of our theme for our four amazing guests is really conversation of succession planning, bringing experience to those who may be stepping into our shoes. So to kind of continue that particular theme uh, to bring our four guests back is one to two primary universal questions is in your level of practice in your field, what do you find it being the biggest mistake in the clients that you work with? And if only that had either a came to you sooner or B 
the picture would have been much more different had they had this piece of information. And what would be that piece of information? I know it's a big ask, so quick uh, review of the question is, you may have encountered a client that ran into a situation that if you had that conversation to them before, they could have either A, missed that big pothole on the road, or B, had they known that piece of information, they would have avoided it outright. So that's the question. So now this is the kind of the legalese uh, portion of the podcast. Uh, this show is brought to you and sponsored by yours truly, Anthony Chen with Lighthouse Financial Network. Securities and advisory services offered through Royal Alliance Associates, Inc., RAA member FINRA SIPC. RAA is separately owned and other entities and or marketing names, products or services are referenced here are independent of RAA. The main office address is 575 Broad Hollow Road out in Melville, New York. Zip is 11747. You can best reach me at 631-465-9090, extension 5075, or best through email, which is really just my full name, Anthony Chen, C-H-E-N, at LFNLLC.com. Now, to bring our four amazing guests back, again, the question is, in your profession, in your industry, what is that one piece of information had that potential client ran into or had a conversation with you, they could have avoided that one major mistake? Kelly? Well, we just got done talking about death, so we'll talk about firing people. Oh, all right. I think that probably... The, well, it's basically categories of mistakes as opposed to a particular client. So I hear particularly of small business clients, they say that they can't fire a particular employee because that employee just told them about a disability. Or they'll, they'll say that they can't fire somebody because of their race or another type of protected category. That just simply isn't true. What it comes down to is managing risk. I always tell employers of all sizes, whether it's a small business or a large business, to um, it's generally speaking a good practice to hire slow and fire fast. If somebody is toxic to the company, it creates more risk to keep them around than it does um, eliminating risk just to let them go when the time is right. Mm-hmm. So the other category is of clients that just kind of, you know, pull the ripcord and just kick the person out the door without really observing any kind of risk management strategy at all. So I would say for small business owners out there, you know, you have the toxic employee you want to let go, you can do it, but I would just encourage you to investigate risk management options before you do it. Great. Thank you. Todd. So Anthony, what wasn't actually a client who was a, um, uh, networking fellow, uh, fellow gentleman, another net, networking group I was involved in. Mm-hmm. And he said to our group, he said, before you make your next hire, bring on a business coach. And uh, that really resonated with me. I'm sure you're loving to hear that. Right? <laughs> and, uh, and I did that. I brought on a business coach um, and that was exactly five years ago. And that was such a change for my business. Um, when you are a, um, a business owner, 
Um, who holds you accountable? Who's the one that making sure that you're doing the things that you want to do? Or as my business coach says, making sure you're swallowing those frogs each day, you know, because sitting there doing job descriptions is not a lot of fun. So who's going to make sure you actually write them? Who makes sure that so? So the business coach is just an incredible tool to bring into your business. And I'm thrilled that we've had one for five years, but I wish we've had one for 10 years because it's been um, just a total change in our business and, and never make the mistake that I made and said, you can't afford a business coach because it's a critical part of your business and what you do. And if you and, and how to be successful and grow. Right. Thank you. And Bill. Well, Todd, I appreciate the emphasis <laughs> on business coach and, and having a, a partner to help hold you accountable to your aspirations. Uh, I would agree with you wholeheartedly and my recommendation uh, to family businesses is to really see the benefit, one, of building a strong team, so a bench of people who are capable of growing and uh, adding more responsibility so that they each can step forward within your business. And two, I would advocate for the value of an advisory board or a board of directors. So, Todd, much like you've said, people who can partner with you and hold you accountable to the aspirations you have for your business. And an advisory board and a board of directors can really work closely with you and complement you on your mission toward the success you have for your business. Thank you. And Michelle? I'm going to have to go with the danger of DIY. People do it themselves and they are too slow to implement the important things that aren't urgent or easy. And it's that old Stephen Covey, you know, table. And so I see people who have trust that they have never put anything into. So when they die, they end up having to go through probate anyway. I see businesses who don't have the team and the person who dies is the one who did 50% of the operations day to day and the company either flounders and then slowly succeeds or completely fails and has to be liquidated. Um, and it's what I tell people is it's like toothpaste in a tooth in a, in a toothpaste tube, right? When you squeeze out the toothpaste, there are some situations where you can't put the toothpaste back in. And so ask, asking questions early, preparing early, not being afraid to pay a consult fee to go talk to people who specialize in an area. You know, Henry Ford had an eighth grade education, I believe, right? Mm -hmm. He became successful because he surrounded himself with people who were specialists in what they knew. And I think all of us deserve to have that same kind of support and that we should value ourselves enough to go out and find advisors who can help us be our best version of ourselves. Well, thank you, Michelle. So this little section is called Anthony's Financial Take. Uh, as you've listened in, uh, kind of the theme is finding specialists and people who are experienced and knowledgeable in their particular field to really help uh, with your family finances, particularly in a family business, uh, whether it's bringing a business coach to really expand the growth of the business and kind of holding yourself accountable or a whole legal team to really help you navigate the risk side of employment and labor, even to the state side. And uh, even having that conversation of test driving out your potential powers of attorney. Well, my little bias take here is also having a conversation and perhaps having a financial advisor uh, on board as part of your advisory board. At the end of the day, it's really finding great, competent people of high ethical standards to surround yourself with because it's already hard enough specializing in one industry, let alone trying to do it yourself in every single industry. So that's a little bit of my take, finding the right team members on your own advisory board. Thank you for listening to Family Business Radio.